here. There, there was so much capital mm-hmm. irresponsibly deployed to capture dreams that, that the volume of, of, of equity destruction is going to be massive. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. I'm happy to announce we have a real treat here for you today. Stephanie Pomboy returns to host a special interview with economist, hedge funder, and professor Peter Atwater. It's pretty excellent and extremely timely. Enjoy. Hi, this is Stephanie Pomboy. I am the president of Macro Mavens, who is guest hosting for Adam Taggart today. Apparently, on my first outing as guest host, uh, the YouTube channel was still standing. Nothing burned down, so he graciously offered for me to try number two. And uh, I'm very excited to have with me um, someone whose brain I've been very eager to pick for a while. um, And the timing seemed particularly great right now. um, And that is Peter Atwater. Um, Peter is, uh, for lack of a better description, sort of an expert on confidence and more specifically how changes in confidence can influence the economy and and the financial markets. So the timing, like I said, um, could scarcely be better because it's it it feels to me a lot, Peter, like uh, we've hit these extremes. Um, And for a little while, it felt like the extremes in confidence that we were seeing in the economy were finally being mirrored on Wall Street. And then you come to yesterday and today, and it feels like we're right back to your K-shaped situation. So maybe you could talk, actually, before we get into all that, I'd love for you to describe a little bit about what it is that you do. You know, you made a shift from working in the financial services sphere to deciding you know, I really need to be an expert on confidence to figure out what's going to happen here. Um, How you made that shift, what brought you to it, and then sort of a little bit about your process and how you measure confidence. Okay. So um, this this is all the consequence of my then six-year-old son, who, when I turned 45, decided to um, sort of triumph his uh, math skills and letting me know that I was halfway to 90. And so, yeah, so, so that, as I was blowing out the birthday candles, um, realized that I was halfway to 90 and decided it was time to do something different. And um, at that point, I think I had not yet uh, become familiar with you, but my next stop was Minionville, um, writing about what I saw in the financial services industry. And what I discovered, I think, through the financial crisis was that the, the, the stories weren't quite right in terms of why it happened. And that sent me down the rabbit hole of consumer sentiment and um, through a journey through socionomics, which is a field that Bob Prechter really pioneered in terms of looking at the connection between mood and decision making. And you know, for the past 15 years, I've really been focusing on how changes in how we feel drive what we do. And I've found a lot of consistencies and um, important um, connections that I try to use to assess what's happening in the markets, where the markets are going, where the economy's going, um, trying to avoid the pitfalls of buying at the top and selling at the bottom, which unfortunately most people do. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely 
a, uh, a study in psychology when you get to that point, whereas the markets are going up, everyone feels like they've got to go up forever. And of course, you know, out of nowhere, that psychology will shift and you get to these periods where it's like you just, no one wants to touch a stock with a 10 foot pole. But the swings we've seen recently have been really stunning. And um, you wrote a piece um, probably two weeks back where you said, you know, we're at an extreme where things are either going to get a whole lot worse or they're going to improve dramatically. And your hunch was that they were going to get a whole lot worse at that time. Um, and, you know, they definitely did. Um, so I'd be curious as to, again, you know, here we are today and suddenly this change in this perception about the Fed's trajectory and the strength of the economy has suddenly got risk back on again. Is this a temporary shift or do you think that this is the beginning of a broader move here that we're seeing? So I think short term, um, I, I have a hard time seeing that the foundation has been laid for a real meaningful bounce. You know, lows in the markets occur when everybody thinks it's going to be getting worse. Mm-hmm. And, and candidly, I don't think we've seen that. Uh, you know, the, the, the parallel I use is that it feels like a long summer car ride where the kids in the back seat have gotten restless and everybody's asking, are we there yet? I, I don't know how many articles and conversations I've had with people that, you know, everybody sort of feel like, are we there yet? Is, is it done? You know, people are tired. It's, it's not a, it's not fear, it's fatigue. And, and I, I've never seen a market bottom on whining in the sense that we're just, we're just all tired of it. Um, it's interesting. You know, I try very hard not to watch CNBC, but occasionally I will tune on there to see what's the mood. You know, what are people talking about? What's the attitude? Um, and, you know, every conversation is about what's your shopping list? What are you looking to buy? You know, what looks like an opportunity here? Uh, so I think you're 100% right just looking at that anecdotal evidence. Yeah, I, I, as I said, you know, th- this is one of those times where folks are so convinced that if they all just say that the bottom is here, the bottom will be here. And it's like, that's, that's not how lows and confidence work. Um, now, having said that, I, I would also add, you know, volatile people behave volatilely. You know, we're incredibly impulsive. And so it doesn't surprise me to see, you know, five, 600 point moves up and down because I don't think people have any real conviction that it's, it's very much a, you know, me here now, I'm trading for the moment. And if I can make money, great. If I can't make money, I'm out. But there's, there's no sense of, of, of certainty to the trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's not persuasive at all, you know, in terms of selling a long-term bull market thesis. Um, and uh, I, again, you know, I come back to you, your description of the K-shaped recovery and, um, you know, what you described as clearly, you know, the high end was going to do very well because the financial markets were going bananas and the low end was just continuing to get weaker and weaker and more pressured. And it does feel like that low end of the K has gotten so much more desperate in the last year or so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you're at the low end of the economy, you're being pummeled mm-hmm. between rents 
and food and gas and childcare. I mean, what what the low end of the the market is experiencing um, is just one financial attack after another. And, and I, you know, was looking today. You know, you've got the market up 600 points at the same time oil is up. You know, three four percent. And I'm thinking, do do people not realize? I, I think we've. I think we need to have a term called work from home blindness, which is people are spending you know, the, the financial elite are spending so much time sequestered away from the real world that I think they've lost sight of the fact that the 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 folks who are delivering things to them, who live in the real world, have to buy gas. You know, they they have to do things that those at the top don't have to. You know, they, they pay rent, they don't own. I mean, they, they haven't, it's, it's just mind boggling to me, the disconnect and the lack of awareness that those at the top seem to have um, around those at the bottom. I mean, I guess I'd be interested in your theory on why that's persisted so long. Um, my sense is just that, you know, there's the fundamentals and there's liquidity and you and I have been tracking this, you know, weekend of the K for a long time and the gap between the mood on Wall Street and the mood on Main Street, as it were. Um, but, you know, on Main Street, those kind of pressures are irrelevant because if a company buys back enough shares, its earnings go up, it pays dividends, it's got all this funny money to throw around at shareholders. And so they're enjoying high times. They don't really care, you know, what the actual core business is anymore. And in fact, you know, in this run up, we had profitless tech companies were driving the market. So who cares whether you have a viable enterprise or not, or whether your your consumers are able to rub two nickels together, as long as the Fed's easy, you know, let the good times roll. Yeah, I mean, with, with free money, the ability to financially engineer your earnings results mm -hmm. is unlimited. I mean, you, you can create whatever earnings per share you wanted to, you know, thanks to, you know, zero interest rates. And, and, and so I think we've seen companies over and over do that. And then, you know, mirrored with that, the, the, um, the bubble in dreams that we've, we've experienced where investors were buying, you know, willing to buy promises of, of even the most ridiculous things. Um, and, and so, you know, what I, what I think is underway though, is a, is a real reversal in sentiment that didn't begin this year, but began almost 18 months ago when you saw you know, GameStop and, and SPAC mania accompanied by record volumes of zero, of negative yielding interest rate bonds. So, so you had this parallel peak in stock prices and in bond prices. And that is an unprecedented moment in the markets. We, we've never seen this kind of coincidence before. And, and so what I don't think investors quite appreciate is we're having a, an unwinding in both fixed income and equities simultaneous here. Okay. And, and there's not going to be any place to hide in that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, one thing that I've been tracking, which, you know, is a little bit more nerdy minutia, but um, the corporate credit side, I always look at as, you know, a good leading indicator of where the stock market's ultimately going to head. And, you know, everyone's been focused on credit spreads, saying, well, credit spreads really haven't moved that much. But, you know, junk yields have gone from four to seven and a half in five months. So I have to believe that there are marginal borrowers like there were in subprime who could only service a 4%, you know, bond who now are going to have to face rolling that over at seven and a half. But, you know, it's been another universe uh, for some reason that what's happening in the bond market, like you're talking about, has been viewed as somehow, I guess, just hasn't captured the attention. I mean, the treasury market's gotten some attention, but nothing else. And I think, you know, your point is well taken that those two moving together, it's incredibly powerful and important and different. Yeah, and, and, you know, what we haven't seen yet, to your point, is any comment about potential business failures. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who pays a lot of attention to, to language, the message so far has been a repricing of abstraction, a repricing of, of equities, but it's in the context of things were overvalued, but now they're they're more fairly valued. Mm-hmm. Nobody is talking about the potential for businesses to fail, that, that companies could cease to exist outright. And, and I think individual investors and certainly institutional investors are, are woefully naive in the thought that we can just keep these dreams afloat as corporate spreads and corporate rates just keep going higher and higher. You know, it's sucking, it's sucking the air out of the room. 100%. I mean, I think as it was, the share of companies that were zombie companies that couldn't service their debt was something like 30% of the Russell before the pandemic. And obviously that number went down because they were handed money with the PPP. But now that that money is gone, wouldn't you presume that there's going to be a whole line of companies that are not going to make it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and thousands of them. I mean, we're, we're not talking about a small number here. There, there was so much capital mm-hmm. irresponsibly deployed to capture dreams that, that the volume of, of, of equity destruction is going to be massive. I mean, obviously that's not in any way priced into the credit spreads at all. I mean, they have barely moved. Um, it's all been the nominal yield that's kind of gone in March step with the, with the treasury market. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like anyone's talking about risk of a corporate credit, you know, bubble bursting here at all. Um, the big shock has been that earnings aren't as good as they were supposed yeah. to be. But, you know, if your earnings, that's the first thing. If you don't have profits with which to, uh, you know, cover your debt service, then you're going to have other problems, I would think. But. Yeah, the, the other place where I think there has been insufficient attention paid is to the excesses of, of those at the very top. You know, if you, if you look at the extension of credit, for example, to, you know, pri- in the private banking space since the financial crisis, it's extraordinary. 
I mean, a, a bank like JP Morgan has more private banking loans outstanding today than it does credit card loans. Hmm. So, so you have a, a massive amount of credit that's been extended. You have an oversupply of elite product providers, service providers, whether it's you know, luxury goods, hotels, you know, the, the sense that the elite, the elite are different and will never succumb to any kind of a, a, a cycle is just mind boggling to me. And, and so nobody has contemplated that the, the biggest potential losses could be among the customers that have heretofore been the safest. Yeah. Wow. Wouldn't that be a shock? You know, the Teflon high end to suddenly stop buying Gucci handbags and stuff. What do you think all that uh, private lending is financing? Is it uh, mega yachts and real estate or what do you think? Do you have any insights on that? I, I think so. a lot of it is, is, you know, margin debt. A lot of it is, you know, residential. Um, you know, the, the whole mindset of the financial elite was don't sell it, borrow against it. Because if I if I have to to sell it, I I incur an enormous tax event, and so what they've all done is to just keep borrowing against it in the belief that the valuations of of whatever it was were permanent, you know, the art collection, the the you know, and so they they've done the classic, you know, I'm going to avoid taxes and take on leverage and instead as as an approach. Right, because asset prices never go down. So that that's perfect. It's sort of like Michael Saylor with Bitcoin, right? Why would you why wouldn't you go out and just borrow as much money as you can to buy Bitcoin? Well, and, <laughs> you know, and with the, you know, with the estate tax being what it was, it was basically folks thinking, you know, if I can just keep, you know, keep this debt outstanding till I die, then my kids, you know, inherit an enormous sum of money um, without ever having to experience, you know, any kind of a tax expense. I mean, it's, it's, it's masterful tax strategy, but it is completely devoid of a connection to reality. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. I'm going to have to dig into that. I haven't looked at, you know, the numbers on, on the private lending um, because I've been so focused on the corporate side, but that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, one avenue, like you said, I think this, the shock that the high end, you know, might not be indestructible would be really something. Because right now we're watching, you know, Target, Walmart, and people aren't yeah. particularly shocked that, that they're having problems. But when it moves up the food chain, um, that could really catch some people by surprise. Yeah, I, I like to use the CAC 40 as the uh, proxy for the, the luxury world, because so much of the French market is, yep. you know, luxury good providers. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the, the French ETFs are, are you know, luxury good ETFs in drag. So I was gonna ask you actually, you know, more broadly, how you translate your analysis of what's happening with confidence into actionable investment ideas. And I guess one way to get into that now would be you know, you talked about private lending as an area people aren't focused on. Um, how do you, if you were to, you know, construct sort of a broad uh, portfolio of how you would position 
what you're seeing right now and some of these themes you're following? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, so, so what I look for is a sense, you know, at peaks in market, I look for a sense of invincibility where there is a, a view that the power, the control, the certainty that those involved have is going to run in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. and, and you could see that, you know, for sure in the SPAC space 18 months ago, you could see it in a lot of the private equity space, but there was this, this clear sense that um, we as fund managers, we as corporate executives, are invincible, that nothing is, is going to harm us. We're invulnerable to any kind of change. And, and so, you know, from a positioning perspective, you saw that you know, most egregiously, I would guess, in the things that were incredibly abstract, uh -huh. the, 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 the dreams as it were. So, you know, the last 18 months, we've seen the dreams implode. And by analogy, I would say those, those were the subprime of the cycle. They, they were things that were the last of the party, SPACs being most notable, who then become the first to leave. So, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, is that bubbles unwind on a LIFO basis. Okay. You know, the, 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 the most ridiculous lending happens at the top, the most ridiculous stock buying happens at the top. And then when the rarefied air starts to dissipate, those are the first to fall and they fall precipitously. You know, mm -hmm. Look at Zoom, look at Peloton. You know, they, they're just classic examples of the things that were bid up at the very end that have now fallen entirely from grace. Although I would note, nobody thinks those companies are going out of business. Right, yes. Um, but what we started to see is this, um, sort of the, the migration from subprime equity to alt-prime equity to this year, the, the too big to go bust have started to fail. Mm -hmm. So Tesla and Apple and Amazon, you know, they, they were late to, to begin the unwind, which makes sense to me because they, they have stability, relative stability. But what's so noticeable and important about this year's decline is it's, it's the most viable that are beginning to struggle. Mm -hmm. And that's where you end up with, from an analogy perspective, the too big to fail banks coming under attack in the, in the 2008 banking crisis. And now we're talking about real companies with real earnings that are starting to struggle. Mm -hmm. and, and here, I think they're going to face vulnerability in every possible dimension you can imagine. So revenue pressure, cost pressure, tax pressure, mm -hmm. regulatory pressure, regulatory, yeah. you know, just everything that could go wrong is going to go wrong because they've had an enormous tailwind that's about to become a, a huge headwind mm -hmm. it, because that's what happens when confidence cycles turn. Everything that can go wrong goes wrong at once. Yeah. Well, and it's so easy to see how quickly that could happen because the seeds for a lot of that have been sown already, but people have been so 
you know, rose colored glasses about it that they haven't like the regulatory stuff has been kind of in the background lurking for a long time for a lot of those the big tech companies that you mentioned. Um, so, you know, there are clearly things that have already been brewing that people have kind of brushed away as they're not going to happen. Um, yeah, they, they get dismissed because they haven't happened yet. They won't happen. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's about to be shown really, you know, that was the wrong assumption, folks. Yeah, absolutely. So going back a little bit to this current scenario where obviously the markets are having this momentary euphoria of, okay, you know, maybe Powell isn't Volcker 2.0, so we'll be okay. And I, I guess what I struggle with is, let's say the Fed does sort of scale back on its tightening uh, path, uh, and you continue to see this erosion in earnings forecasts, which I think will, you know, continue to come down. And obviously the gas price pressures will continue to chew at that, that low end of the K. Um, I guess the question is, do we, do you see any scenario where we avert a recession or do you think that kind of thing is so baked in the cake that the, the markets are eventually going to have to price in that scenario and that that will be the, what's the, catalyst if you see another down leg what what's going to get us to that yeah so so if i watch you know as i do google trend spikes um we've just seen a huge spike in the word recession a huge spike in the word stagflation and and so what we are now starting to see are the implications of that burst in sentiment so if, if we all believe a recession's coming, then what do we do? Well, we, we think that rates are likely to come down because that's you know, what happens in a recession. Um, we begin to lay people off, which we're starting to see in larger and larger numbers. Um, and so I think that the cake has been baked from a sentiment perspective where people are now acting on the assumption that recession is coming. And remember, it's that action that actually causes the recession to come. So, so I think that the cake has been baked. Um, and I think that we could easily see the Fed you know, pull back even more dramatically as the economy weakens. But this is where I go back to you know, food and energy and what that's going to mean to businesses that are dependent on, you know, large scales of employees, they're, they're going to struggle because in order to keep peace, as it were, they're going to have to find ways to keep raising wages during a recession. Mm. Um, or they certainly aren't going to be able to cut them at a time when those input costs, you know, food and ener energy being the number one outside of wages, show no signs of going down anytime soon. I mean, I think, you know, I look at uh, just the CPI versus the PPI as sort of a crude profit proxy. And I've been saying for, oh, I mean, almost a year now that the CPI has been going up at half the pace of the PPI. 
And yet Wall Street was forecasting, you know, earnings growth, double digit earnings growth. I'm like, I, I mean, I know everyone likes to imagine that companies are passing these price increases along and maybe they're passing some of them on, but not nearly as much as they're experiencing. And then yeah. you layer on top the wage thing that you're talking about. Um, and yeah, they're in for a hell of a lot of trouble. And if they can't borrow their way to better earnings numbers, you know, through buybacks and dividends or whatever hocus pocus they can do, then, you know, you, you pull the curtain and there's, it's not a good picture. No, no. And, and, and you know, businesses need to expect that they're going to see unionization and, you know, worker organization um, like they've never seen before. Mm. Um, you know, and the other thing I think businesses need to get braced for is um, the impact of, of this mismatch on the revenue side between what I call temporary income and permanent expense. So we celebrated on the way up the, this era of the subscription model, this era of the, the rental model, where anything could be borrowed for a short period of time. And, you know, that was, that was the given. And I don't think folks realized that when you can't afford to eat and to buy gas, right. um, things are going to go. Yeah, $10 Netflix is more than you're willing to pay. And I think I, I'm I'm waiting for the the bubble burst in you know rental property, you know whether it's vacation rental property or you know suburban rental property, you know this is this is where I don't think landlords recognize the power of the consumer to reprice what the base rate is for hotels and for you know, things that you need on a short-term basis. Um, you know, if, if you know, the, the consumer is going to have far more leverage than those owning all of these things um, expect. You know, uh, you were talking about the power of unions and, and um, it just made me think immediately of Starbucks and Howard Schultz because he you know, obviously uh, came in and immediately decided that they're no longer going to do share buybacks, which, you know, I guess right now is viewed as the exception, clearly to the very firm rule that companies are going to continue to buy back shares like crazy. So I'm, I'm curious as to whether that struck you as a signal or if it if it is kind of a one off. I mean, do you make anything about Schultz's moves there? Yeah, I, I, I think what that suggests is, is he was looking very quickly. And obviously, he knew what was going on before he arrived. Yeah. Um, I think the problems there are far greater than folks realize. And that, you know, he quickly concluded that this is a, this is a time where, you know, we need to have as much financial staying power as we possibly can to, to weather our way through it. And I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, how many three, $4 coffee do you need right. um, in a time when people can't pay for gas? Yeah, absolutely. 
No, I mean, a Frappuccino probably costs more than a gallon of gasoline for yeah. sure. So yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, I mean, I could talk about these companies all day long. One thing that has always been a mystery to me, and I, I'm hoping maybe you could shed some light on it. And that is that um, we have seen confidence shaken from one institution to another. I mean, the confidence in government is about as low as it's ever been. Um, you know, you get, even now with the leak of the Roe v. Wade potential decision, even the Supreme Court, which, you know, where confidence used to be just resolute, seems to be taking some hits. Um, and I guess the one institution to me that mystifyingly maintains peak confidence is the Federal Reserve, despite every, you know, gross mistake it's made over decades. Um, you know, it seems like now the attitude is, well, they're not going to over tighten, everything will be fine. You know, Powell's got this in hand, and we will have a soft ish landing. And I don't know, I'm just curious as to whether you think that confidence is ever going to be shaken. Um, or if maybe it's out of fear, people are too afraid to give up their confidence in the Fed, because the alternative is too terrifying. Yeah, so I my feeling is that um, interest rates, or maybe put it more accurately, you know, bond prices are the best measure of confidence in the Fed that there is. If you if you go back to the days of Volcker when bond prices were had collapsed and interest rates were soaring, you know, nobody thought the Fed could, you know, do anything right. And I, and I think we should remember that and remember that in the 40 years since then, we've seen nothing but improving confidence in the Fed. So it, you know, there'll be those who say this is spurious correlation, but I don't think it is. I, I think that um, confidence in the Federal Reserve, confidence in central banks more broadly, peaked January a year ago. The negative yielding interest rates may have been the world's most obvious and overlooked contrarian indicator on confidence in the Fed that there was. And so I think as interest rates rise, you'll continue to see declining confidence expressed in central bankers. And the higher it rises, the, the more confidence will come out of the, the system that central bankers can, can navigate this you know, with some sort of grace and skill. And, and the danger is, you know, if you look at negative interest rates, I think you need to think about, was that a bubble? Mm -hmm. you know, which would suggest that the collapse in confidence in central banks could be intense and quick. Fast and furious. Yeah. Not wishing it, you know. I, I don't wish anybody, you know, ill in this. But if negative interest rates were the sign of a top of a bubble, as I think they were, we know that bubbles burst. Confidence evaporates, and the the result is a perilous decline in price. Well, and the implications of that are so much more profound than the bursting of a bubble in the stock market or even the corporate credit market or whatnot, because now we're talking about global currencies. We're talking about specifically in the US, the world's reserve currency, 
And we've already seen sort of a bifurcation of the global currency order in terms of, you know, a hint that there's now going to be maybe a commodity-based currency regime starting in Russia and maybe along with China. Um, and so if you start to pull at the confidence in Western central banks, you're really talking about potentially a whole new monetary order, are you not? I mean, yeah, you're, you're, talk, you're talking about a reordering of, of the globe in terms of relative strength and power. Um, and, and, you know, right now the mindset is around those with commodities, that commodities will be the dominant, you know, currency of choice. Um, and the, and the commodities potentially could be weaponized in this process. Um, I think that, you know, we, we have to be, you know, cognizant of that implication. And, and this is where it gets complicated if you're an equity investor, um, because the, the potential then isn't a market collapse, but a market collapse that is preceded by hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, as, as bearish as you may be, you, I, I still think equity investors have to have you know, a bit of one foot on the brake, one foot on the gas, because if if the the consequence isn't outright price collapse, mm-hmm. the alternative is that that as currencies lose their value, you end up with with an enormous hyperinflative um, uh, asset bubble. I have one client who always reminds me that no one lost money during the Weimar Republic in the German stock market. You know, it just hyperinflated away. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess what what's most terrifying about this prospect isn't even the idea that we'd have a new monetary order because, you know, when you think about it, we've only had the dollar standard really for 40 years. It's not even that long a, a time. Um, in fact, I've been around longer. Than, yeah. <laughs> so I don't remember it prior to that, but still. Um, but what's terrifying about it is the way you describe it. If, if we did see that bubble peak alongside negative interest rates, and it is therefore, you know, a real bubble, then the speed with which it can unwind could be really shocking. I mean, we could be talking about, you know, not just some kind of five-year time horizon, but something much, much shorter. Is that correct? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's the potential problem with a, a bubble burst in fixed income mm-hmm. is that the speed at which it unwinds is com, you know, comparable to what we've seen in equity bubble bursts. I mean, the, the good news is that it's not just our problem. So we have, we have a misery loves company and Lord knows we got a lot of company. Uh, between you know Europe and Japan, UK. So I guess that at least that suggests there'll be some immediate call to arms to come up with a real um, solution that hopefully you know mitigates some of the damage. But I, I don't know. Have you given thought as to how you see this playing out? I mean, for me, I, I admit it's very 
you know, I can just imagine that ultimately we'd have to go back to some hard asset tether like gold. Um, but other than that, it's very hard for me to sort of see each domino and how it lines up. I can well, see where the end is, but not necessarily the steps from here to there. Well, and, and you know, let, let's take the U.S., for example, because, you know, from a relative perspective, when you think about the domestic supply of, of energy, the, the domestic supply of, of food stocks, you know, we, we're in reasonably good shape relative to a lot of other places. And so that, that complicates the question of relative strength. Um, because, you know, on the surface folks would say, yeah, the, the US is a mess. It's like, yeah, but if, if you're moving to a commodity-based system, we're, we're, we're less ugly than many. Um, and, and so it, it, it becomes challenging. Um, it, it then, but then you throw on, you know, a, a geopolitical lens to it and, and, you know, not to, to get, you know, too, you know, far afield, but, you know, let's look at that in the context of blue state, red state, you know, if, if commodities are weaponized, uh -huh. Suddenly, you have a middle of America that has enormous power relative to its coasts. Yeah, yeah politically, that doesn't seem like something that uh, the establishment, let's say, is necessarily going to be super content with. But <laughs> yeah, so so I just I just think that this is not as obvious as America fails poorly, but I think that. You know, when you when you start to look at it, um, and then, and then the question becomes even even more fundamentally. In this environment, what does have value? Mm -hmm. You know, folks talk. I, I always, you know, you, you think about the prison environment. You know, ramen noodles carry an enormous amount of relative value in that environment, mm -hmm. and you would say, you know. That, that's ridiculous, but, but when you have folks having to reestablish norms and reestablishing norms for what has value, it could be almost anything. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, we need to be careful to assume that what has value today is what the crowd decides is going to have value in the future. I don't, I, now, having said that, I, I, I feel very confident that it's not going to be anything to do with cryptocurrency <laughs> and crack technology. You beat me to my next question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I think we did learn that, you know, figuring out what has value um, can be very eye opening um, from Russia, you know, whose currency went yeah. from having zero value, you know, um, to suddenly being one of the strongest currencies on the globe simply based on its stockpile of, of resources, especially oil. Yeah, if I, if I tell you that you have to pay in this currency um, and I control that currency, I, I can pretty well make that value whatever I want. So let's go back to crypto because I, you know, you can't have a conversation these days without somehow addressing crypto. And I'm curious, um, you know, that's another place where at least I know people who are obviously non-investment people, you know, they're the classic Robin Hood 
trader types who were playing crypto, playing crypto, um, you don't invest in crypto. Um, and uh, they still haven't completely lost the lo love for it. I mean, they're licking their wounds, but they're not saying, oh my God, I, you know, I need to get rid of all of it. It's obviously a fraud, you know, but talk to me about how you analyzed crypto throughout this entire uh, boom and the bust and where you see us going. Yeah. So, I mean, crypto is fascinating to me because in the past 10 years, we've seen two bubbles. Stephanie's interview with Peter will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And last, if the challenging macro outlook that Peter has detailed in this interview has you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends and risks that Peter and Stephanie have mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of Stephanie Pomboy's interview with Peter Atwater.